Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thanks for this family here giving us the opportunity to come together, even though it was a little snowy outside this morning. Help us, God. Help us to see what you have for us in the scriptures. Help us to uh, respond to what you reveal to us in the scriptures, that we would not just be a people of conviction, but we would be a people of action. God, that the things that you reveal in our hearts today would cause us to respond in faith and in repentance, that we would lean into our union with Jesus, and we would see that since we are united with Christ, we uh, can go and we can produce works that are good in our communities, in our homes, and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We, we, we had put our, our family first. And uh, for, for many people, this would have been seen as a noble thing, right? Sarah and I, we, we, we just spent our lives placing our family first, right? Family is your first ministry. It's your first priority. It's the people under your home that, are the, the, get, get the top rung as it relates to the hi hierarchy of my priorities and your priorities. And so as I make my schedule, as I, as I do things, right, I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can to put my family first. Something I think that's very, very culturally acceptable in, in our society especially is this, this hierarchy of priorities you hear people talk about, right? So like we have God, and then we have family, and then we have like like work, or we have like extended relationships with extended family or other friends. We have social life. We have entertainment. We have all of these things. And, and, and each of us in our minds, we have this list in our, in our, in our head of like, okay, here's, here's what's first, and here's what's second, and here's what's third. And, and many of us, we talk about like we, we got to put our family first. But like putting God first kind of goes not communicated, right? Like that's a given. We should assume God is first, family is second. But what we really need to be intentional about is putting our family first. And Sarah and I, as we've looked at our life and our marriage over the past few years, we've been married for, it'll be five years this August. We're young. We still have our huggies on. We're still learning a ton. And one of the things that we've noticed is that we had put our family first. And, 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 and the way that we actually noticed this was quite interesting. We were presented with this question. I love qu good questions. They just penetrate the heart. They, they cause us to examine ourselves genuinely. And um, we were asked this question. Okay, God is first and family is second in your, in your life and in your mind, right? But if you were to flip those and you were to put family first and God second, would your life actually look any different than it does now? Think about this in your own life. If, 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 if God is genuinely first in your life, and family is second, and you were to flip those and put family first and God second, would your life right now actually look any different, or would nothing change? And as Sarah and I wrestled with this question, we, we were staggered by the reality that our lives would not look very different, that we had in fact put family first. And culturally speaking, that was a noble thing. It looked really good but it brought God little glory. How do you know the things in your life are good? Like, like, what is it in your life? When you do something good, when you contribute to the community, right, when you care about another person, what, what defines something, an action, a desire in your life as good? What, what helps you kind of rate the goodness of that thing? 
What's the standard of measurement? How do we know that something is actually good? Is it the benefit that it has toward other people? Is it the fact that we get joy or some sort of pleasure from it, and so we, we know that this is good? Or is it something else? Right? Sarah and I were staggered by the reality that our marriage actually looked kind of good. Right? We had... We had, we had from, from, a, from a Facebook or Instagram standpoint, we had, a, we had a pretty marriage and family life. It looked okay. It looked like we had things together. But, but there was little aspect of our marriage that pointed to the glory and the majesty and the goodness of God. And you might be, like, surprised by that statement, but that, I mean, that is a very fair and honest assessment of where our family has been. And this morning, as we look at John 15, I I just want to press you a little bit and ask you this question. Does your life look good? Or does your life point to glory? Are you spending your life trying to be good enough, to to contribute enough, to to, to look functional and reasonable to others around you? Are you spending your life looking good enough? Or are you spending yourself every moment of every day seeking to point all of the glory and aim everything that you do at Christ himself? Is being good our highest aim or is the glory of God our highest aim? You'll see a graphic up on the screen. Last week, Dave talked about why we exist as a church. Why does Crosspoint Community Church exist? And he talked about um, that we exist to bring glory to God. There it is. Thank you. I know you had to skip a slide to get there, so I appreciate that. We exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus who live 3D together. Dave uh, talked about that statement last week. This is the goal. This is the point. This is the mission, right? And how that works out and what that looks like in our everyday way of life, we're going to start talking about that today. We're going to spend our time this morning talking about what it looks like to be followers who believe and repent, disciples who learn and grow, and members who one another, which is absolutely horrible grammar, but I promise you, by the time we are done, you will understand what members who one another means, okay? That is the, the goal of, of what we're trying to accomplish. We're in this four-week series talking about living 3D. What does it look like to live devoted to Jesus and dedicated to one another and driven to reach people, and why do we as a body of Christ exist, but as I was looking at these things, right, like, like all of these things that we can do, I think, I think, we, I, I think as a church, like, like we do service okay. And what I mean by okay is like right now there is a team of people executing children's ministry like a bunch of ninjas back there. And they're doing it well. And we need to pray for them because they're investing in the lives of kids and those kids matter. And the time that they spend matters. And we need to pray for the people in the nursery who are changing diapers and praying for the salvation of your children right now. And those people are serving and pouring out their lives. And we have an amazing team of people that come and serve in student ministry. And I get the opportunity to oversee this team and watch them do their thing as they care for students in this community. And if, you, if, if, that's, if, if students in this community is something you're personally burdened for, I, w- I would love to talk to you about joining that team. I know Becky would love to talk to you about joining Sun Chasers. We have an amazing group and teams of people that serve up here every Sunday and, and lead us in worship. They don't perform for your enjoyment. They, they, they're up here to provoke in your heart a vertical worship and praise of God, and, they, and, they're, and they're calling us to do that together every Sunday morning. 
And we have a team of amazing volunteers that come in here every Sunday and, and create an environment that's welcoming and good and caring for those who are visiting us. And, and we want to meet new people and we want to shake hands with new people but, and we want to ask questions that are deeper than, hi, how are you? Because we actually care, right? And we have teams of people that do that and make glorious coffee so that we can be awake at least for five minutes while we're in here, right? Like, like we have teams of people that are serving well. But one of the things that I think we forget in our pursuit of good works is why we're actually doing them. Like, what's the point? And wh what's our aim? What's our goal? I think we get obedience. I don't have to sit up here and talk to you over and over again about what obedience to the gospel looks like. But as it relates to why we obey and how we're able to obey, I think those are things that we kind of tend to ignore. They're things that we tend to miss. You see, our obedience to Christ must flow from the life of our union with Christ. Our obedience to Christ, our works for Christ, our effort for the gospel, our, our, our good works that are aimed at the glory of God in every single thing that we do day in and day out, they must flow from the life of our union with Christ. And John 15 is going to talk about that with us, talk about that with us this morning. We're going to see how union with Christ, the fact that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, how that's going to impact our faith and repentance. We're going to talk about how our union with Christ, that there is this intimate connection between us and Jesus that Christ accomplished for us at the cross and sealed for us in the resurrection. That that union, this mysterious, beautiful union that we are Christ's and Christ is ours and how that affects our desire to learn and to grow in Christ, but, but finally, we're, we're also going to talk about how we relate to and care for and, and our commitment to one another in the body, that because you're united to Christ and I'm united to Christ, we're called to mutually care for one another in unity because corporately we are together united to Jesus. Union with Christ is the most significant doctrine in the New Testament. I'm serious. It's huge. It's a, it is a massive deal. It's such a big deal to Paul that he uses the phrase in Christ referring to the implications of what it means for us to be united to Christ in God over 90 times. Paul says in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, this happens, in Christ, this happens. And because we're in Christ, we can now do this. And in light of the fact that Christ has done this for us, we are now found in him and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, right? In Christ. Paul drives this point home that we are unified with Jesus over and over and over again. And the Apostle John does the same thing, except instead of using the phrase in Christ, he uses a word that the ESV translates as abide. Abide. If you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you, then this. Or some of your translations might say, if you remain in Christ and Christ remains in you, then do this, and, and, and there's this, this doctrine is so huge, right? This idea that we're connected to Jesus. Ephesians 2.13 says, we were once far off, but now we've been brought near in Christ. 
We were once separated from God, unable to walk or stand in the presence of God. And because of the work of Jesus, we can now come near to God. This is the entire Old Testament, right? Right now we're in this, we're, we're, you know, if you're, if you're tracking with us in the year-long reading plan that we're doing, we're in the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, if you've made it to the book of Numbers, that means you got through the book of Leviticus, which if you did, like, good work. And if you didn't, and, you, and, you like, and you're like, man, this is too heavy for me, guess what? We're in the book of Numbers. Just turn the page. Keep reading. But the book of Leviticus is so fascinating. A lot of us, the, the book of Leviticus is so confusing. But the key to Leviticus is in the, the first part of the book, like literally the first sentence, and the first sentence of the book of Numbers. The first sentence of Leviticus talks about God speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting. And so the presence of God is in the tabernacle, and Moses cannot enter into the tabernacle because he is not holy. Moses is unclean, and there is now a problem. God has come to dwell among his people, but Moses can't get near to God's holy presence. And then the book of Leviticus happens. And then the first sentence of the book of Numbers says this, then God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. And so it's through the, 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 all of the things, of the confusing and difficult things to read in the book of Leviticus, that Moses is actually able to enter into the presence of God. And as I read the book of Leviticus, I was fascinated because I don't have to do very much of what that book commands to go into the presence of God. And that is the significance of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. You and I, who are tainted, unclean people, stained with the stain of sin, marred with the filth of unrighteousness, are cleansed by the blood of Jesus and able to enter into God's holy presence. Not only that, but we are united with the perfect Son. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And the implications of that truth are fleshed out throughout the entire New Testament and bear significant weight for the everyday way of life of the everyday normal Christian. Union with Christ is so huge. We're connected to Jesus, and we receive life from Jesus. And this union is so mysterious, so incredible, so lofty, that one of the most profound ways that it's communicated over and over and over again in the Bible is through images. Images. It's not like a list of principles, like, oh, well, here are the seven points of union with Christ. No, it's, it's too big for that. And so Paul uses images like we're the body of Christ, and he is the head to talk about our connection with Jesus. And he uses images like we are the bride of Christ, to talk about how that union with Jesus leads to this cherishing relationship between husband and wife. And we are that bride. And he uses imagery of, of, of the church, the people of God being living stones built into a spiritual house, growing with growth from God. That we are the very dwelling place of Christ on earth, unified together, growing together in Christ and reflecting his glory to all of creation. And as we unpack and wrestle with one of those images today that he is the vine and we are the branches, we are going to see more and more how this union affects us in the practical, everyday way of life of our Christ-following mission. If we miss union with Christ, we miss seeing the greatest blessing of Christianity. That we belong to God and he is now ours. So we're going to jump in, verse 1, chapter 15. It says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, 
that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. When we, when we, when we think about the Christian life as it's revealed in the Bible, we, we have to make a distinction. We have to make a distinction between two things. We have to make a distinction between our union with Christ, right? This fact that we have been united to Christ in God. Um, I love the end of Romans 8. It really just talks about this so heavily, right? That there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? And Romans 8 is this big picture of what it means for us to live out our union with Christ, independence on the Spirit, life in the Spirit, life united to God in Christ. God has given us the Spirit. We have the Spirit, and now we can walk out in obedience because we have been united to Christ. Union with Christ is something that will never change. It is something that God has done in us at our conversion. We are united to God. The blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, past, present, future unrighteousness. There is nothing that can separate us from that union. There is nothing that can hamper that union, deteriorate away at that union. And so that is so huge. Christian who is struggling in here. Your union with Christ does not change. It doesn't change. It can't change because his cleansing power is greater than your sin. Your sin, the sin that is still in you that you're wrestling with as a Christ follower, it can't separate you from your union with God. But we have to make a distinction because there's union with God, but there's also communion with God. And I know those words rhyme and I'll try to separate them as much as possible. But we as Christ followers, we don't just experience union, we experience communion. And communion is like the waxing and waning ebb and flow of our Christian devotion, of our devotion to God, right? There are days where our communion can be great. I'm singing in the joy of the Lord, I'm spending time in the Word, I'm on my knees in prayer, Right? I'm aware of what God is doing in the lives of other people. I'm aware of what God is doing in my own life. I'm focused on what God is doing in the lives of other people. I'm focused on what God is doing in my life. And my communion with God is good. But if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you and me both know that there are days where communion is not so great. We're tired. We're weary. We're discouraged. This world has beaten us down in one way or the other. And, and today I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like being in Christ today. I don't feel like walking out my obedience to what God has called me to do today. And it's our, in our moments where our communion is weak that our faith is weak. It's in our moments where our communion is strong that our faith is strong. But it's also in moments where our communion is weak where we need to hold on to the unchangeable truth of our union so that we can be encouraged and draw near to the one whom nothing can separate us from. And so we have to think about those two things this morning. We have to think about union, and we have to think about communion. Maybe you're here, and, and your relationship with Jesus is, like, awesome. Communion is good. But maybe you're here, and your relationship with Jesus is struggling. You're hurting. 
or something in this world that's distracting you, taking you away from that which you know is good and life-giving. So I pray that this morning you would be encouraged by what the Word of God has to say about union with Christ so that would encourage you to draw near to Him and renew that communion. Communion begins with faith and repentance. It begins with faith and repentance. Meaning, in moments where my communion is weak, typically what's going on is I'm indulging in a sin that I don't really want to talk about. I'm indulging in something that I shouldn't indulge in. I'm finding joy in something that's actually killing me. And it's peeling away, stripping away at the affection that I have for my king, the affection I have for my Lord. And so it's, it's, it's in those moments where faith and repentance are so huge. You see, because faith, I don't, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think we can think of faith as like this, like crossing our fingers and like this, we think it's like biblical optimism, like I'm just going to hope for the best, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm, I'm going to hope that it's going to work out and it's going to be okay and everything's going to be fine. And we think faith is this like hoping for the best. Cross my fingers, I hope it's going to work out. But faith is not just hoping for the best. It's not this this weak optimism. Faith is holy confidence in God. I once heard it said by a pastor that, that authentic faith is not believing in God, right? Seeing him as something that's true and, 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 and believable, but it's believing God. It's taking him at his word. It's walking with confidence in who he is. It's assurance expressing itself in tangible actions. We are so confident in God as Christ followers that our way of life shows it in everything that we do. Our allegiance is to Christ. This is biblical faith. Our allegiance is to our king. And so when he says something, we listen. When he tells us to do something, we follow. Not to earn his favor, but because that's where our allegiance is. He's our king, and we're willing to follow him anywhere. And the, 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 the root of that is, is our, our, our own faith and our own repentance, right? Our strong and weak communion stands on our faith and our confidence in God and our repentance. Repentance is not this one-time thing that happens one time in life way back when. Repentance is a way of life where I'm daily examining my own heart, examining my own actions, Growing in my awareness of the holiness and majesty of God and growing in my awareness of the, 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 the unrighteousness that's in me and desperately clinging to my need for the cross and running to the cross because I know at the cross I'm clean. At the cross I'm unified with God. And that motivates me to continue to walk in faith and repentance. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. What he's saying is, is remain near me. Place yourself in close proximity to me. You're mine. You've been united with me. Every branch that, that does not abide in me is, is cut off and, and withered, right? There are moments in my life where I want to sever myself from the love of God and, and, and do something that I know is going to steer me away from his grace. It's like trying to drink out of a cup with holes in the bottom of it. I'm trying to get my fill. I'm trying to get my thirst quenched, and I can't because over and over and over again, I'm drawing from the wrong well. I'm drawing from the well of sin and not the re- well of redemption. I've, 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 
we've refused the fountain of living water and we've settled for muddy, mucky water thinking that it's going to quench our thirst and our communion with God is disrupted. And it's in those moments that we, we have to be reminded that we've been united to Christ and we can run back to him. We can return. We can come to him in faith, in confidence that he's cleansed us entirely, in repentance, turning away from the things that are tearing us away from Christ and running toward him with everything that we have. Our faith and our repentance are vital because apart from the vine, we can do nothing. And so anything that we're doing, trying to separate ourselves from the vine, we've got to bring that into the light and ask God to show us maybe areas in our hearts that we don't even know about today where we're severing or trying to sever ourselves away from communion with God, away from intimacy with God, away from joy in God. It's our faith and our repentance. Our allegiance must belong to our King. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have told you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. We abide in Christ. We remain close to Christ. We, we, we connect to Christ. We draw near to that union that Jesus himself has established. We continue to pursue Christ. We shed away the things that are tearing us away from him in faith and repentance. We approach him with confidence. We know that he is our God and we are his possession, that we are the body and he is the head, that we are the bride and he is the groom. So we approach him in faith and repentance, and that produces works. Faith and repentance are the crucible of, of the vine dresser's pruning, right? In verse 2, we see that, or in verse 1, we see that Jesus is the vine and the Father is the vine dresser, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes. He begins to pick away the useless aspects of the plant so that the plant can yield as much fruit as possible. And so God in his pruning work through faith and repentance is, is picking away and peeling away at the areas in my life that don't bear fruit so that my life would yield as much fruit as possible. And so it's often in the painful pruning of life that we see God at work. We see him pruning away at the things in our life that are severing that communion or trying to sever that communion. And the vine dresser, the divine vine dresser, like a surgeon, is getting in there by the power of the Holy Spirit and pricking away, pulling away the things in our life that are tearing us away from him. And this union, right, it produces works. As the Father's pruning, we're abiding, good fruit is coming. Good works are coming. And we're going to spend a lot of time in this series talking about the nature of those good works, right? Some of the ways that we see those works played out in our everyday way of life, right? Through through serving and through giving and through making disciples and through loving one another and all of these things. But I think there's an area of, of, of good works that we miss. And it's our learning and our growing. I think when we think of good works for the kingdom, we often think of things that we're doing to pour out ourselves and serve and love others. And, and those things are necessary. But if our union 
is really the thing driving our works, then our desire to grow in our communion with God is going to be there. Right? We, we, we have this neglected work of learning that we've just ignored. Like many of us think that because we got saved and we're, we're in Christ that there's, there's, there's nothing else that God has left for me. And I'm just supposed to kind of keep going on my everyday way of life and just keep doing the same things over and over again for the kingdom. And there's an aspect of that faithfulness that is totally true. But as Christ followers, shouldn't we never stop hungering to learn more of who our king is? Shouldn't we hunger and thirst to learn more and more and become more and more familiar with the things of the gospel and the things of redemption and the things of God and the things of heaven? Filling our minds constantly with more and more and more of Christ and his word. I once knew a guy who loved talking about himself. Raise your hand if you know somebody who like, loves talking about themselves. I'm just curious, right? Yeah, yeah. If your hand's not up, you're probably lying. I think we all know somebody who loves talking about themselves, right? Like, like you say, how are you? And you know you're in it for the long haul because this person is going to tell you how they are. And they're going to tell you everything that's going on in their life, what they're learning about, right? They're going to tell you what's bringing them joy, what's not bringing them joy. They're going to tell you what, 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 what's painful in their life and what's not painful. Maybe they'll go deep. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just tell you about their favorite sports team and how they're doing really well right now, whatever. But we all know somebody who loves talking about themselves. And, like, you know, it's, you ask them, how are you? And, like, the person just doesn't shut up because they'll just keep going on and on and on about themselves. The most loving thing for a person that this person could do, right? Somebody who loves talking about themselves. The most loving thing they can do in a conversation is what? What about you? Let me hear about your life. Let me hear about you. Let me, let me learn about you. Let me hear what's going on in your life. But you see, this person's love of self is reflected in what they say. Because if I'm honest, I'm the guy who likes talking about myself. And in my love of myself, I'm uninterested in, in you, and so I'll keep telling you about my day and what's going on in my life. But how many of us, like, does this, doesn't this, isn't that such a good reflection of our relationship with God? Like, think about it. We go to God in prayer, and we just tell him all about ourselves and what's going on in our life and, 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 and what we're doing and, and what, what we're learning and what we're all about. But what if we as a church stopped and paused and just thought for a moment, like, what about him? What about you, God? Who are you that you care so much about me? Let, me? let me learn more about you. Let me investigate and understand more of who you are. And as an expression of my love for God, let me learn about God. Let me learn who he is. Let me wrestle with the deep things of God. Like what would happen if we took our eyes off of ourselves and our relationship with God and we fixed them to our king? And we started asking ourselves, like, Lord, what is it you want to teach me about you today? What is it you want me to teach, to learn about your character, your nature? What, is, how, what little things can I do today to learn more about redemption, to learn more about abiding, to learn more about my union with you, to learn more about my communion with you? What little things can I do today to learn more of Christ and who he is and why he came? Verse 10 says, if you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Which means this, our obedience gauges and reveals our love. If we love Jesus, we'll keep his commands. But what if we don't know his commands? How can we keep them if we do not know them? If we're not constantly learning and growing and understanding who God is and what he has called us to, how can we love him? I had this conversation. I was reading this, and I had this conversation with my son the other day. He's three, and so he was, you know, doing something he wasn't supposed to. And I, I pulled him over. I said, Leon, come here. He's like, he's like, what's up, Dad? You know, he's all happy. He's like doing something he's not supposed to, about to get in trouble. And I asked him this. I said, buddy, do you, do you love your dad? He was like, yeah. And I was like, why don't you do what Daddy says? And he was like just struck. Like it was, there was a connection that was made for him. I don't know what, but he just, he was speechless. And if you know my kid, he talks a lot. He's never speechless. And then he just kind of went, huh? And I was like, I was like, buddy, if you love mommy and daddy, you'll do what we ask you to do because you love us. And for a three-year-old little boy, like he got it. Like it, it, there, there, there was no more explanation for him. But for us, we get so muddled in the details that we just miss the simplicity of what Jesus is saying here. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. But that also means if you love me, you'll know what I have to say so you can obey it. And so if we look at our own personal lives and we ask ourselves how we're doing in obedience, the real question isn't, oh, how are we obeying Christ today? It's really, how are we loving Christ today? How can you see my love and affection for Jesus in my everyday way of life? Starting with learning and growing in who he is, being an apprentice of Christ, growing in him. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It is very, very interesting to me that Jesus in verse 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then in verse 12 says, this is my commandment. Like if you obey my commandments, you'll abide in my love. But then he gives him the answer. He says, this is my commandment. So if you do this thing in verse 12, then you will abide in my love, verse 10. And then he says that you love one another as I've loved you. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, there are these one another commands. You guys have probably heard us talk about these before. But essentially, all of these one another commands frame this relentless commitment that we have to one another in the body of Christ. That our union with God, that we have been united, I've been united to God in Christ. I am one with Christ, and you are one with Christ. And so because we are one with Christ, there is a unique connection that we have. It is the most significant connection a human being can have with another on the face of the planet. That we are one in Christ, you and I both, brothers and sisters in the gospel. And we are one in Christ. And so there is this relentless commitment to each other because of our relentless commitment to our king together. And so, like, we're people who are committed to one another because we've been unified to Christ together. And Jesus ties this in with love. Our communion with God, 
our union with God, both of those things are revealed in our love for each other. Which means this, you cannot have a vibrant relationship with Jesus apart from a deep connection with a local group of people who are also following Jesus, the local church. You find for me one Christian, I've never met one, I've never met one Christian who is flourishing in their life in Christ apart from a connection to a local church. I haven't met one. And I'm willing to bet if you've been following Jesus for any number of years, probably longer than I have, you haven't met one either. And so where have we convinced ourselves that we can actually follow Jesus and have a life that looks nothing like his? Where have we convinced ourselves that we don't need each other? Jesus says he connects our commitment to each other with our commitment to him, which means if we're not committed to each other, we're not committed to him. If our communion with Christ is revealed in our love for each other, how are we doing, Crosspoint? How are we doing? How are we unified in the gospel? Or how are we in disunity? Maybe there's somebody in here that's betrayed you. Or maybe you've betrayed somebody. And you're unwilling to walk out the reconciliation that Christ calls us to in that. And here's the thing. I'm not minimizing the betrayal. The betrayal is filthy and heinous and awful. And yet because we are unified to Christ together and that union doesn't change, that enables us and allows us to walk out what it looks like to see relationships like that restored in the gospel, to do the dirty work of being unified together in Christ. There's no room for being petty in the kingdom of God in our relationships with each other. Like, we've got to set aside our preferences for the sake of being unified in Christ. We have to. The kingdom is at stake. The kingdom is at stake. Later in this passage, Jesus says that the world will know that we are Christ's if we love each other. That the peculiar unity of the local church remains so deeply connected that the world outside cannot argue that we are Christ's and he is ours. <laughs> that our union with Christ personally is affecting our union with each other corporately. And our corporate unity in Christ is a testimony to the glory of Christ to the world. And so how are we doing? And what does this love look like? Well, according to Jesus, it looks like laying your life down for his, your friends. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then he says, you are my friends. And so Jesus says, hey, you love others like I've loved you. There's no greater love than someone to lay down their life for his friends. And guess what? You're my friends. I've loved you and displayed that love by laying down my life for you. Go and do the same, is what Jesus is saying. And so our model for love in the local church is a dying Savior. That's the model. That's what we look to. And so in our relationships with one another, we seek to replicate and reflect our dying Savior, who gave himself up for us. 
how can we lay our lives down for one another? And in that way, reflect the love we have for our Savior, our connection for our Savior. Our abiding, our remaining close and tight with Jesus affects the way that we can remain close and tight with each other. And our willingness to pursue unity reflects our love for our Savior. And if our, if our willingness to pursue unity reflects our love for Jesus, what does our unwillingness to pursue unity reflect? I want this church, I want to be a part of the church. I want this church to be so enthralled and in love with Christ. That you see it in everything. In everything. That we're so near to Christ and consistently placing ourselves near to him daily, over and over and over again. And doing the hard work of abiding, abiding in the gospel. Doing the hard work of being unified in the gospel. So that the world might know who Christ is and what he has accomplished. I love verse 15 through 17, the way that Jesus closes this passage. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Why are the Jesus' friends? For all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The one who was made in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who stands above every throne, every ruler, every dominion, every authority on earth, has said to you and to me and to the disciples, That whatever we ask him that is aimed at the glory of his name, he will do it for us. Are you kidding me? Anything we ask in the name of Jesus that is pointed toward the glory of the Father, right? Good works pointed toward the glory of the Father. He will do it for us. Meaning, if we are afraid to testify about the gospel in our job because we're afraid we're going to get fired, he will provide for us the boldness and the provision to be obedient in those moments. If we're afraid to sit with somebody in school that nobody likes because we want them to know the compassionate love of Jesus, we can ask Jesus in that moment. And he promises to do it for us. He promises to give us the boldness to do it to not be afraid, to take our eyes off of earthly things and fix them to heaven. He is for us because we are his and we are in him and he is in us and we are unified with Christ, so unified with Christ that he is willing to give his ear to listen to us when we ask him for help. Ask him for help. Apart from the vine, you can do nothing. Nothing. And so may we be a people who abide in the vine that God would produce work in 
that God would produce faith and repentance in, that God would produce a hunger to learn and grow, that we would abide in the vine and God would produce joy, that we would abide in the vine and God would produce people who are committed to one another, and that we would abide in the vine and all these things would be pointed toward his glory. And we would not settle for being good enough, but we would pursue glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a church in need of repentance. There are areas in my own life where I've settled for good enough, where I've looked at the cultural standards that are around me and lost sight of the glory that you call me to in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray as a church that we run to you in repentance this morning, that we would run to you pleading with you for your help, your wisdom, your guidance, your comfort. But God, ultimately, I pray this morning that we would find comfort in the fact that you have united us to Christ, that we are his and he is ours. And as the body of Christ connected to the head, may we fix our eyes on the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords as we worship him together. In Jesus' name, amen.